up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm one of your hosts, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nathaniel Frazier-McGee. How's it going? Uh, you know, doing okay. This is episode two. It's good to be back. It's good to be talking more movies. Yes. If this is your first time tuning in, Back to the Movies is a podcast where Nat and I revisit some of the great years in cinema history, looking at the movies that made it what it was. We are starting with the year 1990. Our first season is on the year 1990. And we are on our second episode. Yes, and we're approximately in March of 1990, which is the same month that Benjamin Hain was born. So that's sort of our through line here, is that we were the infants and these were the movies. These movies came of age with us. These movies uh, yeah, were birthed with us. They, they were birthed with were us. They were birthed into existence with us. So we're dealing with, ago, the, with the existential crises of getting to 30 so to cope with that we're re-watching these 30 year old movies <laughs> yeah that's not accurate we, we, we are uh, just trying to go back desperately trying please, to go back please that's the title but yeah we've got a really good movie this this uh week a special one that we neither of us have ever seen before yeah i don't know if i'd agree with the assessment of really good but we'll get to that Okay. Uh, last week we covered uh, Hunt for Red October. I just want to do a quick check-in. I said at the end of last episode that I would ask my dad if uh, he had any Red October stories, particularly since it came out the weekend I was born. And he didn't have anything about the movie, but he did tell me that one time when listening to the audiobook, when the book first came out, uh, he was driving to a job and missed his exit by about 10 minutes. Oh, wow. he was too obsessed with the book. So, love so you didn't book. find out if you went to see it on opening weekend? He did not. I asked. I asked. Okay. So he had his priorities straight. He, he did. Definitely. <laughs> the birth of his son, just a little bit higher on his priorities than the film release of Hunt for Red October. That's good to hear. Cool. So what is our movie this week, Ben? Our movie this week is the seminal romantic comedy, question mark? <laughs> Pretty Woman. Now, Pretty Woman. Walking <laughs> oh, down the God. street. Pretty Woman. Yeah, that song was stuck in my head. It's stuck um, in my head. I watched it last night and it's still in there. I'll say this right off the bat. This movie actually has a pretty rocket soundtrack. Yeah, it's a great soundtrack. And I think it was it was a bestseller soundtrack. It was yeah, definitely it went, a, hold on. I got a, info on this. A big deal. And maybe was important in like the nineties paving the way for soundtracks. Maybe I'm just making that up, but there used to be a huge emphasis on movie soundtracks, and maybe this had something to do with that i don't know i don't know if this was a progenitor of that or if this was just part of that cycle but it was um a huge hit and it's a you know it's very 1990 not every song works um i feel like but on the whole bunch of bangers was was so, into that part of the movie so are we going to talk about our general thoughts what's the first order of business yeah i suppose so normally we would start by whoever selected the film explaining why it was they chose it but like you said earlier neither of us had seen this movie before now technically you were the one who suggested we cover it was there a particular reason why you wanted to do that this movie's legendary people know this movie it's a cultural icon and i figured like a lot of the movies that we're eventually gonna check out i haven't seen a lot of 1990 movies. I've seen a lot of 90s movies, especially from the latter half of the decade, and obviously the biggest classics of all time. But if I was looking at a list of every movie I've seen from 1990, it was honestly a little light. So I thought that this would be a good way to just get 
a general sense of what was going on with the culture because this is a huge movie. Hugely successful, still a cultural touchstone. I mean, absolutely, you can't talk about that year in movies without talking about Pretty Woman. So normally now we would also talk about our personal histories with the movie, but we both just saw it for the first time. So let me put it to you like this. What was your immediate reaction to it, seeing it for the first time with all of that knowledge? Well, obviously I was waiting for some of the most famous moments that I've seen here and there. Because it's this movie's been around. To just backtrack for a second, just because I've never seen it, I still have a connection to it, which is that I know it's like Julia Roberts. It's Julia Roberts. Here she is. And you see clips of it and you know that it's about a hooker. So going into it, I was a bit dubious, obviously. (laughs) I was thinking, how is this? Is this going to change the way I think about prostitution? Is this going to be a really like eccentric or a really electric romance between the two of them? And I got to say that it it was awfully flat. The movie was awfully flat other than the person of Julia Roberts. I didn't feel much watching the movie. It was really just the Julia Roberts show and everything else was sort of fluff and almost meaningless. I don't know. What about you? you... <laughs> well, you can attest to the fact that we haven't actually compared notes yet. We both yeah, watched we the movie within the last couple of days. We haven't compared notes. I felt exactly the same way julia roberts is effervescent she is this lightning bug on the screen her character is whatever yeah julia roberts the person is there's something electric about her that you can't you can't you can't look uh, away and it's not just a, a a physical thing it's a personhood thing she is an amazing person right in fact Every, I mean, every part, yeah, every part of her is just like she's so energetic and and so specific in that energy that she captures the screen and she is what I think elevates the movie because everything else around her ranges from boring and flat to like gross and detestable. <laughs> well, yeah, and I actually took it upon myself today to talk to some coworkers who do have a personal history with the movie. And one of them is younger than me and one of them is about 10 years older. The 10 years older guy was telling me how when this movie came out, it was a huge phenomenon pretty much because of Julia Roberts. Everyone was talking about Julia Roberts. It was the arrival of Julia Roberts. She was a nobody before this movie came out. She's got like two credits before this. It's like Steel Magnolias and, um, oh, she stars in another movie. What movie it's, was that? Uh, it's called Mystic Pizza. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Which I've never seen either of those two, but she wasn't a nobody. I'm, she was a no, up-and-comer she, she, supporting she was, yeah. character, or not character actor, but just an up-and-comer. She uh, wasn't Julia Roberts. But this completely transformed her almost overnight, and... The younger person who I talked to, she was telling me about how growing up, this was one of those movies that her mother was really obsessed with. And I think her mother's younger too. So like, it was just like, she was in that generation of like, people who just loved this movie. It was something that exploded and people, it became a favorite movie of people. Right. It was, it was an important part of their 
cinema identity. It was exactly. part of, it was one of the films that they would revisit over and over and over again. Yeah. I don't know anyone personally who had similar experiences to that, um, but certainly they must exist. I mean, the movie was hugely successful in its time and is still very fondly remembered today to the point that the two of us having never seen it before knew it was a movie we had to talk about on our podcast exactly even though neither of us knew how we'd feel about it it was in there but yeah overall it i just it was cool to watch as a cultural artifact and it was interesting to see the beginning of a very very successful career but other than that it it didn't have much for me as a viewer um sure like not a lot of cinematic tr- like art that i could see that i was intrigued by not a lot of characters that i cared about or wanted to see what happened to them in any way and even the yeah but that hector alizondo though right i did like him a lot he was great I, Best I would part of the movie. Be way more curious to see a movie about him, but we'll we'll talk about all that. I, do you want to just start going through the movie? Is that how we're going to do this? Well, I think we should talk a little bit about the production history first because it is actually pretty interesting. I'm sure you must have read some of this story, um, but the movie begins as a spec script written by a uh, struggling screenwriter who's trying to break into the industry, uh, J.F. Lawton, who's had a pretty successful career. Um, the way he puts it, there's a really great Vanity Fair article that I read about this. I want to shout out uh, Kate Erblin, who was the author of that article, um, and where he basically talks about how he was struggling to make it in Hollywood. He was writing a bunch of like ninja scripts and, and kind of stupid, trashy action stuff, which is where he finds success after Pretty Woman for the most part. Mm. And when he's not getting traction on that, he decides to switch things up with much more dramatic and serious work um, just to try and get attention, to gain traction. There's a quote here from the article that I have to read verbatim because it's so it's so perfect. Um, he said, Maybe I need to do something more serious and dramatic. And I had written a script called Red Sneakers, which was about a one-legged lesbian stand-up comic who was an alcoholic. And all of a sudden I got a lot of attention. Mm. So that's where this guy's at. You know, he's he, he wants to write silly action movies can't get anything sold so he switches to trying to make movies dramatic and his instinct is to make the most dramatic things right and pretty woman starts in that same ballpark it's a script called 3000 that's like a cautionary tale about the ills of capitalism you know he's talking about being inspired by movies like wall street and the last detail like he wants to show a gritty america that is rotting because of its capitalist system he's not trying to write this light charming romantic comedy he's not trying to write a fairy tale Mm. um and that's but that's where the movie eventually goes were you reading about some of this i read some of that i didn't get the full story but it basically shifted from a dark script to a lighthearted script and honestly it shows it's sort of like they didn't finish the job of converting it and there's pieces of that old movie in there even if it's just the setting and the world like where i was thinking to myself does this fit where what are we doing right now why are we in this mode when this is supposed to be the tone so that was confusing there's definitely like i feel like the depiction of the 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 prostitute lifestyle as exemplified by kit her friend feels very 
dark, even though it's not presented as dark. She's addicted to drugs. She can't save any money because she's always wasting it partying. She doesn't have um, like any aspirations or ambitions to, to break herself out of this really nasty cycle that she's in. But Her, then they're playing it like a sitcom. Right, exactly. It seems so like a Friends episode. All that darkness is still there, but it's just been sort of painted over in bright colors. Right. It's very Where strange. Where this gets really interesting is that part of the reason the script is bought, it it, it uh, is entered in the Sundance Institute where it's workshopped a little bit, and it's picked up by Disney through Touchstone, which was their adult label at the time, because they were trying to retain Gary Marshall as a director. Gary Marshall had just made Beaches, which was a pretty po-faced, serious adult drama, and they wanted something dark to kind of keep him interested in working with them. And yet, when Marshall gets his hands on it, and when the producer, um, a woman named, I think, Lori Ziskin gets her hands on it, they begin to transform it into this fairy tale movie, which is mm-hmm. much more in keeping with kind of the rest of Marshall's oeuvre. Um, he's like, I don't know if you know Gary Marshall, he's very successful, despite the fact that, in my opinion, he's never made a good movie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he created, he was hugely successful on TV. He created Happy Days, he created Mork and Mindy, he created, created Laverne and Shirley. Like, this guy was a mogul before he moved to the movies. And even movies, he has lots of movies that people love, like like Pretty Woman, like Overboard with Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Um, he directed the Princess Diaries movies, which right. I know some people of our generation are big fans of. Yeah. Um, Definitely seems to be very invested in the rebirth of a life in a way. Those seem to all have a that thematic uh, element of, of, of a person pretending to be someone that they aren't and coming out of it on top. I'll be honest, I haven't seen any of those other movies, but I'm familiar with the concepts of them, and they all seem to be sure. sort of Prince and the Popper, Pygmalion-esque situations, and this one being the, the top of all of them. Well, Pygmalion is as good a transition point as any to start talking about the plot of this movie, which does have a very Pygmalion, My Fair Lady structure, although... Many of like when when they write about it, the filmmakers talk about it more as being like a Cinderella story. Um, I don't know if that's true. I don't think that Richard Gere comes off as much of a prince. Um, he feels more like uh, a Henry Higgins type character who's trying to transform Julia Roberts, but then gets transformed a bit himself. Right. Um, well, yeah, his character confused the hell out of me. I really didn't should- understand what they were trying to do with that. Of the two, he's the first one we meet. So should we talk about Richard Gere for a second? And should we talk about his character in this movie? Yeah, his character is really strange. He's a strange person. I don't understand. Edward Lewis. That's Edward Lewis. Is he... So he's a, a sheltered child of sorts who has now grown up to be this mogul. And he has daddy issues with his father. <laughs> and he's also a playboy he's got a wife an ex-wife he's got a girlfriend that he just breaks up with no problem but he's this weird refined upper class but not in like the scuzzy 80s yuppie way but more in the very traditional sense of he goes to the opera he goes to fancy restaurants for fine dining it it seemed like two different ideas it is interesting i feel like the yuppie ideal was a self-made person and he's definitely not self-made however that air of refinement was 100 percent part of like the 80s yuppie culture 
um, eating at the finest restaurants, enjoying the finest culture. They weren't, you know, they, I think that they would have thought it uh, a status symbol and status symbols are a thing that we're going to probably talk about more because this movie is obsessed with them. But he's um, clearly but to go to the opera. He clearly appreciates all of these things. He's not just doing it for flash. Definitely and... true. Particularly the opera. Like we we are told that like he has a deep emotional <laughs> yeah. connection to opera. Yeah. Uh, so and then in terms of Richard Gere himself, I, one thing I read was that Gary Marshall told him to to not to like turn down his performance. And I think that that shows. Right. The line was something like in this movie, one of you moves and one of you doesn't. Yeah. Guess which one you are. So and, uh, he suffers for it. He's like, he's like a handsome black hole. What's my, yeah, my there's just nothing there. And every time in the movie that he gets emotional about something, mostly when he's angry and when he starts yelling at her or at Jason Alexander, that was when I started looking at him as, someone who I wanted to watch when he showed when he a little actually bit of, had some life when he had him. some emotion and something to do. And he's like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Like that was when I was happy to watch him. But every other time it was basically a bad version of his American gigolo character where there's nothing and under the surface is an actor. I, 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 I have liked in some movies, um, days of heaven, one of my all time favorite movies. And he's phenomenal in that movie playing yeah. a very reserved character. Um, but here where we need to like both of these people and want them to somehow overcome the tremendous divide of their, of their social and economic classes. I don't like him at all. No, I find him predatory and gross and dangerous. Yeah. It was definitely one step away from American psycho. (laughs) I'm not even sure it was a full step. It might've been like a small shuffle. Uh, you could I could easily, see that man obsessing over his business cards. You could easily cut the trailer, the fake trailer on YouTube, where they turn this into a stalker horror movie. <laughs> it wouldn't even be hard. It would be super easy. I own you now. I've paid you $3,000. <laughs> yeah. So we meet him at the party. And, and we also meet Jason Alexander. Yeah, the movie just starts. There's no... It just cuts to, to a shot of Jason Alexander, basically. Maybe there's and we a know pan Jason up. Alexander is going to be a bad guy because his name is Stucky. Yep. Which which didn't I wasn't I actually wasn't sure if he was going to be the true bad guy or if he was just going to be kind of the jerk friend. Like he does a very similar thing in Shallow Hal, where he's sure. sort of the thorn in the side of the main character, but he still gets a happy ending. But in this one, no, he's just. You know, Two movies that sh- couldn't have more in common. <laughs> yeah. It's it's true, though. They're sort of similar in a way. Transformation and Jason Alexander is the best friend. <laughs> but the, the opening line, I think Jason Alexander says it. It's the first line of the movie. He says, it's all about money. Maybe it was Richard Gere. Actually, I think it's Richard Gere who says it. But he says something, something, it's all about money. So that's where we're starting. Great. And that yeah, feels like that was from there from the original script. Probably. Because yeah. this movie has doesn't what I find really interesting is for a movie that is obsessed with the products of wealth, the actual mechanics of wealth seem superfluous. He's Richard Gere stays in the penthouse because of the status that it confers on him. Yeah. Not because he enjoys the luxury of it. 
His money is incidental. He's not somebody who who enjoys being wealthy, but he does enjoy the status that being wealthy infers on him, infers of him. But we don't see him really relish in that, do we? Right, because he doesn't care about the, the penthouse. He cares about being the person in the penthouse. But then all he does is work. I don't know. Right. It's it's super confusing. It just he doesn't enjoy his wealth. Bad writing or weird disjointed writing. Yeah. Uh, so he takes the Lotus and drives cool off into the night. Cool car. Loved that car. That was cool. That was super 1990. I feel like that's the most 1990 car you could ever drive. But let's wait, wait, I want to, I want to even back up a second there. This is our introduction to who is going to be one of our two main characters. One of the heroes of the movie, the person we, one of the people we have to be rooting for is him breaking up with his girlfriend because he won't make enough time for her. Stealing his friend's car because he can't wait for the valet service <laughs> to extract his limousine. And yeah. leaving a party that was being thrown like for him. Yeah. And just and, driving and off he, with nowhere... He just wants to go back to his hotel, I guess? Yeah, that's, I think that's that the, idea. the idea. He just kind of wants to drive for a bit and then like maybe go back to his hotel eventually. Because he's asking people for directions. So, yeah, it's... Who is this guy? He's terrible. He's a terrible we, person. How do we come to love a person where this is this is, this is is the, the floor right here? And it's not even like he's got the charm it would take to be an asshole where sure. you're watch, you can't look away from him. He's not he's, Michael Douglas in Wall Street where you're like, God, you're so gross, but I love you so much. Or, yeah, or even it, to a lesser extent, like a Harrison Ford, like sure. he's a jerk, but you love him. Like, I feel like that's the kind of character you would need, like a Han Solo-esque. Oh, those valets can't get my car? Screw it. I'm going to take your car. And, that kind of carefree hey, attitude. I love it. But in this, it's just weird. he's taking his car okay i don't know it doesn't come off as fun it just comes off as robotic all right let me pitch you my alternate opening of this movie okay that i think would really set richard Gere's character up to be in a much better place for the rest of the film that phone call he's having it's not with his girlfriend that he's about to dump it's him learning that his dad has just died oh everything else plays out exactly the same Mm. but now he's you know He's having a weird emotional reaction that we can't tr- quite track why he's reacting the way he is, but his erratic behavior suddenly seems a little bit more justifiable. And when right. he picks up a prostitute, it's because he needs some human connection, not because he's on the rebound. Yeah. And then when we finally get the reveal about his relationship with his father, that actually lands with some impact because that was the very first thing we knew about him was that that had a strange emotional toll on him. But you know what? Then this movie might not become a hit. <laughs> then it doesn't make the money. Because why would you start it that way? It's a weird movie where some guy's dad dies. I don't want to watch that. <laughs> no, I, I just want to watch the movie where he up picks up a prostitute. Girl. Also, it's the lamest breakup I've ever seen in a movie. It's just over the phone. And he also he just doesn't seem up. that upset. Yeah. I don't know. It'd be one thing if he pushed her out of a speedboat or something fun. <laughs> but it's boring. It's not you a mean fun if, breakup. If he once upon a time in Hollywood did it? Yeah, well, maybe not that far. But if she's like, you bastard, I can't, you'll never get away with it. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's just a shot from behind him where he's on the phone. Right. I don't know. So the problem is because that relationship is totally meaningless to us. And because Richard Gere is playing it like it's meaningless to him. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, so then we we've talked about gear enough. We should talk about Julie Roberts because then we we start cutting between the two of them. Well, can and I we, just say that the opening credits where he's driving the Lotus around, which we're also cutting with Julie Roberts, it's like this really cheesy '80s music, and it's meant to evoke ooh Los Angeles. Oh my God, the glitz and the glamour. The shots of Los Angeles are terrible. They're gray. They're smog. It looks like shit. Well, it looks I think awful. There is an element of wanting it to look seedy. It doesn't, I do feel, I, one thing I'll give the movie credit for is I felt like it was a pretty accurate depiction of even Hollywood today, the weird contrast between Beverly Hills and Hollywood Boulevard. How yeah. just five minutes away from each other, you have, you know, the, 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 the most wealthy of wealthy people and then like the poorest and most destitute of people. And like the weirdest. I feel like that's weirdest, another, yeah, another part of it. It's like the freaks. The freaks of Hollywood Boulevard. That's I do sort like of what that, uh, this is about. The, the guy in the tie-dye shirt. Um, yes. Who has a name that's like like Hope Man or the Dream Town Man Crier. Yeah. But that felt that felt very uh, L.A. to me. Even though I didn't even come, like, I, the first time I visited L.A. It was like 2005. That still felt like Hollywood Boulevard yeah. then. Yeah. A much better movie that captures that Hollywood Boulevard-esque stuff is Tangerine. Came sure. out a few years ago. It was the director of Florida Project. I don't know his name, but it was a really good look at transgender prostitutes on Hollywood Boulevard and shot on location. And it's it's a great movie. Um, but speaking of did, prostitutes, yes. Hey, let's Julia open Roberts. up Julia Roberts' butt in a thong. That's our first shot. Pan. There it is. Amazing. It's like <laughs> let's objectify the shit out of this person from word go. Like the introduction of Richard Gere, I think this is another huge mistake because the very first thing the movie does is, as you say, objectify her and makes her a sexual object. Yep. But Roberts plays the character with a kind of childlike innocence that's quite charming, except it does not fit with the sexual, aggressive, assertive elements of her character at all. Right. Right from the very beginning. I, I was saying this to um, my fiance, Grace, who I was watching the movie with. She might make an appearance on this podcast uh, oh in God. some future episode. Um, but I was saying that it took me a really long time to figure out how I was supposed to feel about Roberts. Was she a babe in the woods or was she someone who had become numb to it? Was she desperate to get out of her circumstances or did she not understand what her circumstances were? I could not really place that because the movie doesn't seem to know either she in some points seems very at home in yeah. the sort of prostitute lifestyle with her own ethos that she has developed about how she's going to sell herself but then at other times seems like she's totally inexperienced and we are told that she's new at this um and so all those things made it really hard for me to sort of track where her character was at and where she was supposed to grow to yeah so she goes down to the club to get her rent money back from her roommate that's robbed her from the toilet bowl. So you get the sense that she's sort of been around the block. And that's a, a Laura San Giacomo as Kit DeLuca, who is one of my favorite characters in the movie. I actually think this character is one of the things that works. She was great. She had a good presence. She was a great foil for Julia or like a, a best friend character. They didn't give her much to do, sadly. They introduced this whole boyfriend element and then... It kind of goes away. Yeah. She kind of disappears. Julia Roberts takes the movie over. It's true. And the movie's not that interested in the life that she's leaving behind. 
But no, as that's a true. representative of that life, I thought Kit is pretty effective. She distills it quite cleanly. Yeah. So, so then Gear picks her up. Yeah. She, uh, her friend gives it to her, gives her the, the client, which I don't know. She was like, yeah, take it. Wouldn't he be like a high profile customer? Wouldn't she want to hop on that? I guess she's being really nice. I don't know. I definitely had that thought where I was like, this guy's driving a Lotus Esprit. Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like every prostitute of the block is Maybe you to both should go going. up. I don't know. Just take a shot. Sure. I, Why not? I have no idea. But can I say, I have two notes that I wanted to mention really quickly. There's a shot of, I think it's in the opening credits, of a Hollywood star. And I have took note of who it was. And it was Carol Lombard, who's a, sure. a, she was like a 30s famous star and i don't know if there was any favorite actresses of all time she's oh really to be or not to be and um uh what's that what's that other great comedy she's she's really funny she was a really funny actress i was wondering is is she a natural comparison to julia roberts were they doing a little wink of sorts with that quick insert shot or did they just pick a random hollywood boulevard just picked a random hollywood i mean like she she was mostly playing like dry. Carol Lombard was mostly playing like sort of dry, sarcastic, whip smart characters. Okay. And that's not really Roberts's wheelhouse. She tends to play slightly more innocent uh, people. Mm, okay. The, the other thing I wanted to mention was quick before they were famous cameo from Hank Azaria as right the detective on the street. First I was thinking, oh role. maybe he'll. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. I was like maybe he'll pop up again, but no, it's just a, he's not famous yet. He gets three lines. God, this movie done. could use some Hank Azaria in like the end of the second act, where like I don't he starts investigating. Start, yeah, something that be uh, I would have welcomed that with open arms. So yeah, Richard Gere takes her up to the penthouse. There's a lot of comedy with her not fitting in. Right. Well, so they they the bond in the car. He she drives him to the hotel because she knows how to drive a stick shift. Mm, suggestive. And then I was kind of into cool. it at that point when she. Yeah. When she took the wheel and she's driving fast, I was like, okay, okay. I could, maybe she's going to open him up and we'll see what's inside. He'll get more fun. But it never and happened. I, I want to mention this because uh, he's not going to take her up to the room. Mm. He pays her. He leaves her. She's going to take the bus. She's going to take the bus. And then he changes his mind. <laughs> the only reason the film seems to present is that he's pitying her. So therefore he's going to pay her to sleep with him. Yeah. Again, not a so. great look for his character. Yeah. He's such a weirdo. He's so weird. <laughs> He's so weird. He's a very strange fellow. All right, so you go on. They they take her they take her through the hotel. There's lots of comedy with he covers her up, right? And right in the jacket. Everyone's like what the hell? Who who is this crazy lady? When they get in the elevator, uh close your mouth, dear. Yeah. Um how about and- that elevator uh the elevator boy? I so I thought maybe he looked suspiciously like Trey Parker. I was like, is that Trey oh, Parker? No. Is that Trey Parker? It was not Trey Parker. It was, it was just some random guy. I thought uh, he had sort of a Kenneth energy from Thirty Rock. Oh yeah, that too. That too. I just thought it would have been so funny if that had turned out to be like Trey Parker moved to Hollywood when he was twenty years old and got this sick it, gig as a bellhop as and, the weirdly like. Uh, peeping Tom Bellhop. But no, he was like still in college, I think. I wanted to mention something sort of in the cultural context, and that is the idea of this 
plaza style of fanciness, like the plaza hotel, which I feel like has really fallen out of fashion at this point. But it seemed to have been a really important element when you look at a movie like this or like Home Alone 2, where it's just this super aristocratic idea of what wealth is. I feel and like this now was, this was I mean, so they shot this at the uh, ambassador and a few other hotels. They had a pretty high budget, so they were able to film on locations that were desirable locations. Yeah, so this was this, this was a nice hotel. This wasn't like a Hollywood conception of a nice hotel. And it's just this super stuffy idea of what it means to have lots of money, even if you don't enjoy it. Like Julia Roberts is clearly valuing everything she sees. Oh my God, this place is so fancy, which I feel like now that kind of place would almost be looked at as super esoteric. And this idea of, it's like, I don't know if you know Leona Helmsley. She kind of was this hotel baroness of the 1980s and she helped create this idea of this luxurious hotel experience where you will be served at your every beck and whim. And obviously that had been a carryover from an older generation, but this had really been sold specifically in the 1980s as the greatest of great hotels. Everything is velvet and gold and red. And it's sort of this alternative to the Trump idea of like, everything is just solid gold. This was a little more refined, a little sure. more hearkening back to like the state rooms of the Titanic. And I just thought that was, yeah, there's definitely that vibe, a super interesting thing to look at as this movie. That's sort of, it's, it's like putting those two, like you were talking about the Hollywood idea, the weird freaky Hollywood idea with this super nice idea. And this movie clearly values the nice aristocratic stuff way more than the Hollywood stuff. Well, and again, I think it comes down to this idea that of of status symbols that it's it's something that uh, that not is is not only fancy but looks fancy. Right, it has the legacy of class and elegance. Yeah, and that's totally fallen out now. I feel like now it's all about minimalism and slick sleek functionality, functionality. Futurism. Yeah, you want the finest things, and the finest things don't necessarily have to be baroque in their finery if they are you know very sophisticated or advanced in their in the way that they work that's almost better yeah so then my next note is gear is a weird predator <laughs> so <laughs> we, go, we go upstairs and he's just so weird and then right. i also wrote is, is she thing. infantilized is she right like I, that's a baby what I want to talk about is that like he comes across as a predator because she is lying on the floor watching I Love Lucy with her legs up in the air. She is playing this character like a child. It doesn't help that the actors have 18 years between them in terms of age. But yeah, she's super. She's 21. Kids. It's amazing. She's, tw- she's 21 when she gets cast. She's 22 when they're filming. He's 40. Yeah. And the movie exacerbates it. I mean, the iconic scene where he offers her the necklace and then snaps the thing closed and she laughs. It's like a child giggling while playing peekaboo. Yeah. That's her character is someone. And that's why we love her. It's because she has this childish energy, but it makes his wholly unemotional Terminator like focus even creepier. Yeah. And it's a really good note that you gave about the, the beginning, because maybe he's going through some shit, but it just doesn't 
It doesn't play. Doesn't read. Yeah, it's not there. It just comes across as American Psycho shit. <laughs> um, so yeah. they spend the night together and they do end up having sex. And yep. it seems like it went well. The next morning they're in robes and he ordered her everything on the menu. Super weird. Super yeah. weird that he did that. But then uh, he starts... He, I mean, he actually started earlier, but he starts what I find to be the most horrific character trait of his, which is his need to control her actions. Yeah. Because this is the scene where he says, there are four other chairs at the table. Yeah. And it's followed right. up with scenes being like, stop twitching. Or yeah. you need to buy a different dress. All of yeah. these really horrifying scenes of him dictating to her how she should live her life. And she's totally cool with it. She never totally fights totally. back. She's like, yeah, change me, please. This is great. <laughs> Bring it on. And I mean, I guess that sort of makes sense with the really shitty screenwriting idea that she's a hooker and she's, this is her job, but it's just she's so a hooker many different... with some fantastic boots. I do have to give the boots some credit. Those are very, yeah, the boots are cool. Very iconic boots. Yeah. They're, they're very high. And, and then we lose them after this, because then we get our first uh, of the shopping scenes. Well, he, he, they make the big deal. He's right. like, I You're need right. a, I need a girl for the, for the dinner. And he's just like, sort of similarly to how he decided to take her upstairs, he just sort of, nothing decides the decision. He's just like, yeah, screw it. I'm going to do this. <laughs> like, there's no cinematic guidance towards why he's making any of these decisions other than his whims, I then, guess. Then because he can. I mean, right. that's sort of his just, entitled, that's his privilege, right? Yeah. And, but yeah, there's but can just we talk nothing about, guiding so We don't see the dinner until later, but we are told by Jason Alexander that if he brings a date, it will go better. Right. Him bringing a date to that dinner in no way helped it go better. It didn't. So it's a pretty flimsy excuse to basically set up the plot, which is we're going to spend the next week together. Yeah. So he just wants her to, to hang out with him and he's going to get, they do the, the bargaining was great. You know, there, there is chemistry there when there needs to be. And there's a couple of good lines of dialogue. I like the, you know, I would have done it for two. I would have done it for four. That was great. Yeah. Love that. But then he goes off to the meeting and she goes shopping and we get the outsider Hollywood freakazoid nature of the whole thing, which again, it's just more of this high class meets low class. Meets low class. Just so obvious, so on the nose though, that she she's not like a meth head. She's beautiful and she walks right. in and, obvi- and it's, we're not- I mean, she is wearing that ridiculous dress. It's a ridiculous dress, but I, I don't know what Beverly Hills was actually like at the time, but like- we're in Los Angeles. Like, we're not in Victorian England. Are they really not? <laughs> if she's got cash, are they really going to just kick her out like that? Maybe it was so different back then that, like, that kind of store would just immediately kick someone out. But that was one of my big notes was that for as, as well as it captures Los Angeles, I feel like the world that they were inhabiting didn't feel like a Los Angeles. It felt more like a super upscale New York or a super conservative, like, New England, or something like that. Sure. Los Angeles is a freaky town. There's there's, <laughs> there's no way around it. And, like, I feel like Beverly Hills people are, I don't know, maybe this was a whole thing that I'm, I'm not even aware you're, of. You're but... saying that it's, like, possible, even in 1990, that some rich socialite from Beverly Hills might be wearing Julia Roberts' dress. And walk into a clothing store. Or they'd give her a break. I don't know. They've, they've seen I, this kind of know, shit before. She's not stuff... crazy. She's not like going nuts or anything. She's just she's just in a crazy outfit. 
But I don't know. A lot of this stuff is sketched pretty broadly. And I'm okay with the movie trying to pitch itself as this, you know, modern fairy tale. But I do think that the scene does a disservice to the movie's, you know, uh, pretenses towards being about class. Because the depictions of class feel very reductive and um, exist almost entirely for plot functions. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. It doesn't really have anything to say about class other than, hey, isn't being rich nice because you can have these symbols of of being important? And doesn't being poor suck because people don't let you do what you want to do? Yeah. And that the movie carries it all the way to the end, which we'll talk about, but it really doesn't ever get a separate point of view other than one weird way but we'll we'll get to that we'll get to that uh so then he's at the meeting of his <laughs> of his buddies and they're all or basically just Jason Alexander is curious as to who the new girl is and i don't know there's it's just these these uh captains of industry or they're, they're not even captains of industry it's clearly it's a just commentary like on the wall street yeah. crap that had been going on at the time and how it's all meaningless it's all they're just moving money around and, and it's I mean, very of the time all the i mean the, the scene the movie has texture these scenes matter but the movie doesn't have a lot of plot no you kind of know where the movie's going from this point onward which is that there's going to be a series of circumstances and misadventures in which these two characters grow closer together and uh eventually we'll reach our catharsis there's definitely some points we should hit i want to talk about hector elizondo who we we teased earlier um he gets introduced pretty quickly here as uh barney thompson the manager of the hotel yeah and i thought he was going to be our antagonist for a second but it definitely the movie plays with that he turned out to be a pretty pretty good guy yeah so this guy he was you know he was a stage actor he he'd done a lot of tv he had done some movies he meets gary marshall the director of this film they hit it off they become best friends gary marshall casts him in every single one of his movies from then on out mm, okay um, he's always in these kind of supporting roles but he nails them he's just got a very professional demeanor and i think his whole fairy godmother vibe in this doesn't always work it feels a little cloying at times but there are some scenes that do this first scene when he confronts her in his office and he starts using the euphemisms. Yes. And Roberts plays it really well too, where you get the humiliation of that, of being told how she has to present herself to avoid embarrassment. Um, And then his show of sympathy, all that stuff works really well. And I think a lot of it is down to Elizondo, who is um, very good at, at projecting kind of um, mannered sympathy. Sympathy, but restrained by practice. Right. Yeah. He He's, felt very lived in. The, the The hotel comes first, but if there's anything that he can do for you within the bounds of maintaining the dignity of his hotel, he will do it for you. Mm, exactly. Um, I also have I, to say, it comes much later, but his line about, oh, it must be Saturday, the only <laughs> belly laugh that the movie got from me because yeah. that just felt that read so true to me about like being in a service industry. <laughs> um, I also wanted to talk about Jason Alexander a little bit, just cause we should, I feel like he's a great actor. He's an amazing actor. I, I don't disagree. He feels so real to me. I don't know. He's, he's a Did guy you like that, him in this movie. I liked him in parts of it. I didn't like it when he had to become 
kind of evil because it felt like yeah. they just needed an antagonist and they just kind of grabbed him and made him that way. But I thought he was great as the curious type that was trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And, and as the like exasperated friend who's like, what are you doing friend. for the deal? Exactly. Yeah. I thought he did really well in that. Um, and I just think he's I great. Was in I the wish... pool. Exactly. I wish there were more chances for us to see him play different characters. Cause I'm curious if he could have had a shot at being more than just George Costanza, which at this point is basically all he's got. Uh, it's, it's so hard for me to even see him in this movie and not think of Costanza. I know, but he's different. If you watch interviews of him, he's not Costanza. He's very I, much playing a character when he's Costanza. I think there are scenes in this movie where he works, but I think on the whole, the character is so badly written, particularly in the heel turn, that I did not like him in this movie. Mm. Just like there is, it's so hard to sell the rationale that, hey, I just found out that my best friend and coworker has hired this hooker for a week. I'm going to go rape her. Like, well, I don't know yeah, how you sell that. He anyway, feels entitled but... to her because she's a hooker and he's pissed off that she screwed the deal up. I don't know. It's just all yeah, over but, the place. Like, here's the thing, Nat. We're good friends. If I found out that you'd hired for a hooker for a week, I'm not going over to try and sleep with this hooker that you hired a person I know who has been sleeping with this hooker. Well, it's almost like there's two characters in there. There's one scuzzy yuppie who is the kind of person that would seek the status symbol and then there's the the exasperated friend who doesn't know what the hell's going on. And it's he changes on a dime, and he's not good at playing the scuzzy yuppie. That's just not the guy you cast for that. No, he's not at all. I mean, you could imagine someone like I'm just like Patrick Bateman-esque at the polo game, touching even the guy, yeah, even the guy, the son of the the ship tycoon. He would have been great at doing something like that. He's a scuzzy, yuppie type, but obviously then that would ruin... No, we're supposed to like him because they make things. Oh my god. they make things. Alright, anyway, uh, I also wanted to quickly shout out to Larry Miller. I'm a Larry Miller fan. He plays the dude at the second clothing shop when she is successful at shopping. He's He's really great in that scene. Yeah, he's great. Larry Miller's the man. He's intending to... Give him your tie. Yeah. Awesome guy. Was, that shopping scene is funny. I like that shopping scene. Even though yeah. it is gross in its sort of like excess, you know, in this idea of just like, if you spend any, if you spend money, these people will debase themselves for you. Yeah, If exactly. you spend enough money. It's fun, But it's though. also pretty funny And you get the needle because, drop of Pretty Woman because you've been waiting for that the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Miller he plays it really well where, where it just, it feels like a guy who's had the windfall he's been waiting for and he's not going to waste his chance. Exactly. So then, I'm. We don't have to go beat by beat, uh, but there's just a there's a series of things that happens. There's right. the polo game, the dinner, polo game, the dinner, and we we meet. We basically so, uh, Richard Gere's in town because he's trying to buy a a ship manufacturing company, and then and then you know break, break it, it apart. He's, and a, sell he's an arbitrageur. Uh, yeah. He, and again, another '80s figure is this guy who is super famous named Ivan Boski, who is sort of like the basis of Gordon Gecko. And there's there's just this culture in the 80s of like, it's obsessed with these money-obsessed people like Trump and sure. like Leona Helmsley and like Ivan Boski. And maybe this is a reaction in a sense and sort of a more popular version than the, the super 
critical one that you see in Wall Street. Like we, we want to be in this world of the super upper class deal maker, master of the universe types. And the problem this is a way less critical version of it. Is that even though he says that he likes the hunt, that he likes the 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 act of of outmaneuvering and out negotiating these people, we don't really ever see that in the movie. No. We only see him do one deal and he immediately reneges on it and sides with the company. He I almost seems like a he seems like a like a backroom kind of guy almost. Right, he doesn't very seem like the kind of guy that would all control of his a business room. scenes are with his own dudes in their own room. And then you see there's lots of shots of him sitting at a desk, like going over numbers, but we never see him other than the client scene, which he handles pretty poorly. Julia is controlling that entire dinner. Right. She's the center of attention. And obviously that's because the movie is Pretty Woman yeah. uh, and it has to be like that. But it's it's not like she's taking it over from him. He's just not doing anything to start. Uh, he doesn't seem like an Ivan Bosky, like a kind of guy that you could walk into a room and just control everything. He right, seems like he's so charismatic that he could get you to sell him his company, your yeah, company. They just don't do the legwork on that. So anyway, I already mentioned it, but like we're building up to this big deal while we are having this growing relationship between these two characters. We're learning a little bit more about their backstories, about Richard Gere's um, cold and distant father, about uh julia roberts difficult upbringing in georgia and her trip out west it, um, the movie kind of settles into a rhythm of like event and then they debrief at right. the hotel and then there's another event of the day and then they debrief at the hotel again and, and they, they, they get nice more and job. more intimate they get more and more intimate as time goes on like and the events the get more elaborate so like you've got like polo game and then you've got opera yeah um, and and they they get sort of barriers get taken down and there's yeah the scene which i believe is kind of iconic of the piano in the restaurant which to me was really creepy did you know uh, that richard gear wrote that piece of music and was performing it himself i'm not surprised it's pretty I impressive mean, actually yeah i was watching like that's really good fake piano playing and grace looks up and she says it's not fake but that just seemed like from a different movie that's that whole <laughs> setup of no music just the piano that seems like it's from the the messed up version of this movie. Because it's creepy. Right. It's like an empty restaurant and all you're getting is like the ding, ding, ding of the piano as they have sex on it. That's weird shit. It's weird shit. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, the scene that carries on from there would be a very un, un upsetting scene. Also, I've made a note of this. The, the horse poop thing. Where was that like a weird cultural commentary where they have to, they just take twenty seconds out of the movie just to show this whole weird rich people thing where they have to turn oh, over the, the poop the on the polo thing. ground, the divots. That was like, are we celebrating wealth? Are we saying how secretly it's kind of gross? I don't get well, what that, the point that of view seemed is. Like the, the movie was not saying that was. I didn't think the movie was saying that was gross. It looked fun. Julie Roberts is smiling. She's and it's just weird. Time. It's like a lifestyle of rich and famous announcer is saying, this is a tradition that's lasted thousands of years with the divots. Even the aristocrats did this. And I was Since the first horsebound knight used his <laughs> lance to slap his enemy's decapitated head across the grounds. Was the movie extolling it? Or was it trying to be like, look, these these rich people are idiots. They're walking out on a field of horse shit. No, I think that scene is all... I mean, I think it's 
partly <laughs> about texture. I think it's trying to show a realistic detail about a polo game. Which yeah. I guess that was something that might happen. But I think it's also about showing Robert's beginning to feel accepted by this community. Because they do show her with all these other rich people going out and just replacing divots. And what a terrible, and weird moment to do it's that. It's setting up the turn that happens when, you know, Jason Alexander reveals that he knows that she is a prostitute and then she feels isolated. Yeah. Which, again, I don't want to pile on the movie too much because... I do. Uh, it's a bad movie. Yeah. But maybe, again, if we want to start rewriting the movie, maybe if it had been revealed to more than just one person that she's sure. a, a fake, maybe that would have some more dramatic stakes. And it's, it it's is humiliating what Jason Alexander does, but it seems so small time and it gets resolved pretty much immediately. They have well, an argument. Her reaction to it is so extreme. I don't think it's unjustifiable, but I don't think the movie goes out of its way to justify it. I, yeah. I do think that that could have been a very shocking and humiliating experience for a person like her. But because it's so small in the context of everything else that's been happening, her reaction to it where she's like, that's it, I'm done because one other person knows I'm a prostitute. Considering in the first few scenes, she's just flaunting it, flaunt, yeah, flaunting it. exactly. Uh, felt pretty, pretty dramatic. In a yeah, it, it just, it seems like they're trying to get from point A to point B without they, putting They need the, the scene where, where they fight. Right. And also, again, like I said before, loved it when Gear had to actually deal with some real emotional shit he when he's actively trying to get her back and he's angry and upset about the whole situation i'm watching him being like okay here's a real person this is great sure. but then she turns around she doesn't get on the elevator trey parker shows up for a second and there's like this weird awkward moment uh and then it's back for some to reason he's wearing a dress <laughs> it's like he's at the oscars and we're back in the tedium of the routine that they've developed and now he's flying her to the opera which Should we was talk about the opera scene it was just the low point of the movie for me because we've had all this explosion that happened in the last 10 minutes and now we're back to basically wealth porn oh right. look at the private jet oh they're at the opera oh she doesn't look at know that necklace to... look at that necklace yeah a real two hundred and fifty thousand dollar necklace there was a security guard on set every time it was on screen oh that's cool it's really ugly yeah. <laughs> really tacky it's just a hundred well, i think again it's this idea of status symbols this this scene works because the iconography of it is incredible the red dress the jeweled necklace all of that stuff feel is like has become ingrained in our cultural memories because the imagery is so powerful the imagery but the is scene strong. itself is kind of again it's this is supposed to be our great opening up of who richard gear is and he still plays it like something, like some kind of test for her. Yeah. That like, this is to see if she's worthy of him saving her, if she loves opera. And she does. She's, she has an emotional reaction and they go back and then he takes the next day off. And Jason Alexander's furious trying to figure out what the hell's going on. I have uh, no idea. And they, they basically just spend the day together. There's the whole thing where he feels the ground under his feet. So make fists they, with your toads. Yeah, exactly. That's the hard exactly. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention in that montage, and this is a real, this is a real deep cut. But in that montage, there's a shot of them at a diner. They end the day eating at a diner, and 
I remember that. Outside of the diner, there's a little newspaper box. And on the cover of that newspaper, the head, the main headline of that newspaper box is Battle of Panama, the entire story. So the historical context is that the USA invaded Panama for like 10 days in right, the to keep the end Panama of, Canal open. To, to keep the Panama Canal open. And uh, it was a very quick war. It was like 500 casualties between the two sides. And they removed or Noriega from power. He was like their puppet right. dictator who, who went off the rails. And their, their justifications were like, Noriega's out of control, blah, blah, blah. But man, was I wondering, was some production designer making some kind of a statement about these well, shipbuilders who Could basically have, have caused the shipbuilders of oh. America have caused this war and this violence of a third world country. And I mean, while it this, is a plot point that the guy's building ships for the Navy. Right, exactly. So while this fairy tale romance is playing out, boots are on the ground in the third world. And it's arguably all because of this guy who was building ships for the Navy. So blood is on the hands of... But Nat, he builds things. He makes things. Right. But the subtext, if you look, if you read between the lines, the subtext is that that war is happening because of this machine, this evil capitalist machine that Richard Gere sits on top of and is dragging (laughs) Julia to the top of. And in the end, she wants to go back to school and educate herself, but he, he takes her to the top of the stratosphere. So I just thought that was a cool little Easter egg that I'm sure only happened because the filming was around the time of this incident in Panama, but stars really aligned with the thematic elements of the movie and history. Well, it's not, it's worth mentioning because, you know, we talked about how during our Hunt for October episode, how, you know, everything is being made in in the shadow of the Cold War and, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. But here's a movie that, is totally disinterested in the you know global climate in which it exists, except as perhaps a celebration of capitalism as this, I don't know, victorious system that can uplift even the most destitute of people. It's really weird because the the great virtuous thing that happens at the end of this movie is that he decides not to liquidate the shipbuilding company. But because it makes there, things now. Are there jobs on the line? Are they talking about how he's got to save the workers? Or is it more just... I kind of missed this because I was... To be honest, I was like zoning out a little bit during those long conversations about... Between Richard Gere and that that actor who we should mention as well. It was his last role. I don't remember his name. You probably have it. Oh, um... Uh, but he's kind of a guy that was around. Uh, but it's not... I feel like the super it, cliche... Uh, Ralph Bellamy? Ralph, yeah, Bellamy. Ralph Bellamy. He was, I feel like the super cliche way of doing this would be... Oh my God! If you liquidate the company, all the sh- all the guys in my scrapyard are gonna get fired. But I don't remember that conversation happening. It was more about the legacy of this company that he built, and, and it, that's I mean, what he's saving is, at the end. All that is there for the taking because that would be what would happen when these you know financiers would buy these companies and disassemble them. Is everyone who worked for that company would lose their jobs? But it's so and strange that the movie. Part decides to celebrate right. this this family corporate business as opposed to the little guy that would be saved by these captains of industry. Mm-hmm. It's more about maintaining Ralph Bellamy's pride. And to that point, we are told that he has that that the Morses have have 
built the company into a, a something that is unsustainable or that it's in difficult financial straits, presumably because of the way it's been managed. But it's not like Richard Gere decides to take over the company and keep it so that he can also build things. He wants to partner with the Morses so that they can keep the company themselves. It is about preserving their legacy, regardless of the fact that they may be responsible for putting that legacy in harm's way in the first place. So the movie is sort of telegraphing to you that Richard Gere, what's his name? What's his character's name? I, Edward Lewis. Edward. memorable name there. Yeah, Edward is doing the right thing by not letting the deal go through. But the money's staying at the top, no matter what. Sure. And the only criticism it's making is of these arbitrageurs who are, who are taking over companies and then reselling them. And it's very of the time, but if you look at it, every all the rich are staying in power. Nothing is changing. It's it's just one rich asshole is keeping his company and it isn't getting sold off by another rich asshole. So yeah, there's great, nothing great. to celebrate here. There's nothing. So yeah, but we she's got a so ahead pretty, Nat. She's so pretty. I mean, and that's where the movie's value lies. It's that here's Julia Roberts. Welcome to 30 years of Julia Roberts. This is the so beginning we should, of a beautiful we should thing. Wrap up the plot very quickly. They wind up together. They want, well, the and, and Jason Alexander becomes an 11th hour evil antagonist. He's... Gear kicks him out. He, he forces himself on her, which is, again, a, it seems like a holdover from the older movie. That he's a character that's a really, really dark and he has all these failures, even though he doesn't have failures, he's I guess. Wildly he's successful. super successful. And it One seems of the like the fact... lawyers of all time. <laughs> So obviously that scene is is tough to watch, and I'm sure at the time it was shocking, but also probably shrugged off. It's shrugged off in the movie. Julia's like, "Why do men hit so so weirdly, and how do they know to do it?" So it's that is, it's, a, that is an interesting line, and and I don't know if it's if it's, it's a, a tough line or if it's a smart line, but my instinct says it's bad. I don't know. We're no, like, not the people to, to really get into this. Um, yeah. Because we're just two cis white males talking about <laughs> terrible, terrible things. Uh, but yeah, it's just weird. And it's it's like an anticlimax almost. It's like we got to have something happen at the end of this movie. So why not just have this happen? And, and what's interesting is that we, we are told that Julia Roberts' character is saving gear as much as gear is saving her. Right. But we don't really see it. And it feels like a scene like this is designed to be a test of how his character has changed. But I am perfectly ready to believe that Edward Lewis would have smacked his lawyer in the face if he had found him trying to sexually assault any person, regardless of where he was. Yeah, it's very true. He hasn't. The only change is that now he takes days off and And decides And he saves the company he would have taken apart. Yeah, that's and a pretty he takes, big one. He takes his shoes off. He the, takes his shoes the, off and walks through grass. And anyway, he does that so that he can come to the realization that he doesn't care about the class divide. He will try and make it work with her. And he arrives at her apartment in the limo with the opera playing. And he climbs up the. He gets the a pep talk, cube, even though he's he scared a, of heights. He gets a quick pep talk from um, Hector. Elizondo. Hector, which, by the way, the movie compares Julia Roberts' character to the valuable jewelry. Yep. Yep. Using a. Basically, a, a metaphor. 
would be a shame to throw away this beautiful... What I can't remember the line, but he's like looking yeah, at the jewels. <laughs> oh, God. Such a beautiful <laughs> thing to go to waste. Or to, to let go of such a beautiful thing. You've made me know. think of one possible reading of this movie that I had not considered until this very moment that sort of salvages it in a way. Throughout the entire movie, we see over and over again that Edward Lewis is obsessed with status symbols. He wants to stay in the best room. He wants to eat at the best hotel. He wants to get the best necklace for his woman to wear. The best seats at the opera. The reason that he will not take Vivian seriously is because she is a prostitute. Because... He can use her, but then he will eventually have to get rid of her because that is not a high status symbol. If he were to court and have a relationship with and potentially marry a prostitute. But at the end, he realizes that the status symbols aren't what makes him happy, that she's what makes him happy. And so he finally chooses the thing that isn't the high status thing so that he can have what his heart desires. I guess so. Or you could look at it (laughs) or you could look at it as he realizes that she is the best prostitute. Even though she was so low class and she was on Hollywood Boulevard turning tricks, he turned her into the <laughs> finest prostitute ever. She's I mean, the yeah, best. The, the, the problem where that doesn't work is that everything he loves about her is what he made her, so... <laughs> he turned... He he found a diamond in the rough, you know? he 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 turned this... I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to keep going with this. Uh, <laughs> well, but okay, so so we we finished the movie, and we should say that we are in the minority. That it seemed like most of the world disagreed with our assessment of Pretty Woman. Well, and we're opens, also not the target audience. Well, I think this wanted to be a four quadrant hit. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It 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 was. I guess romantic comedies, rom coms at the time were not what they became later on in the 90s. This sort of set the stage for a lot of that. Certainly. And it so, did with its box office performance, which is what I was trying to segue into. So elegant. Uh, okay. Yes, it, it killed. <laughs> it did. It, so it opens March 23rd, 1990. Um, it makes $11 million on its opening weekend on a budget of $14 million. It goes on to gross $178 million domestically. 432 worldwide that is massive almost half a billion dollars on a 14 million dollar movie in 1990 it was the let me check my numbers here the fourth highest grossing movie of the year um it was it has the largest number of ticket sales for a a romantic comedy um it's like the second highest grossing after uh, my big fat Greek wedding, which technically makes more money but sells fewer tickets. It's just it's a it's a phenomenon. It's a huge huge success. Yeah, and and I mean that's not a small part of why it continues to have a legacy today because everyone saw it. Everyone saw it, and they went back and they saw it again, and they bought it on home video, and it became the movie that you would put on on a VHS, you know, on a rainy day. Right. And I'm sure it had a basic cable life of its own. It seems like that kind of movie. Easy to put on TV. Yeah, it's a behemoth. It And it made Julia Roberts. I was looking at her filmography after this, and it's crazy. Just like, yeah, she has a killer 90s that she follows up with a, a pretty damn good 2000s. 
She that was the other thing my my coworker was saying was like even when he was graduating high school in the late nineties, they were doing superlatives about cultural stuff, and it was like number one actress Julia Roberts, like Julia she owns Roberts. the nineties. That's she gets nominated for uh, best actress for this movie at the Academy Awards. That's amazing. Do you think it is deserving of that? Uh, I don't know what the comparisons are, but any performance that can sustain an entire otherwise bland movie, I think is something to treasure. And just because her character arc is kind of silly or the writing isn't great, there's something undeniable about her as someone you would just want to watch. And I think that's a fair assessment. This movie accentuates it. Like she's, she is the movie. She is the movie and the movie works. I mean, for most people, therefore she works and the movie only works because of that. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to imagine this movie with any of the other actresses that were fronted. And I just don't think it's as strong. And it's a huge list. I mean, basically everyone was considered for these roles. Julia Roberts, who was an unknown at the time or largely unknown was like last choice, but she manages to land the role and, and the rest is history. I don't, think her performance is particularly good i think she is fascinating to watch um and that she is kind of the best part of the movie but i think her performance as the character vivian ward is confusing and strange and and leaves me feeling unsettled in ways (laughs) that have a lot to do with the dissonance between the performance and the character and but do you think tr- do you think there's any with the script as it's written do you think there's any way of making it work? I don't know. I wonder if a more um staid performance, a little more somber would make the power dynamics less less upsetting. Mm, interesting. You know, someone who felt like they were in more control of their destiny. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess when it comes down to it, best actor and best actress is like a very there's two ways you can go about it there's either the movie star who's playing themselves or there's the person who's fully immersed in a role and this is just a perfect example of of the former where it's julia roberts she's on front and center and she obviously attracted people like moths to a flame um and there's something to be said about that like it's strong and even 30 years later you can see why that might have happened yeah. I will say that the critical reception was mixed. Even though this was a huge commercial success, there was a great quote uh, on the Wikipedia page from the New York Times Review um, by uh, Karina Chocano that I want to read here, uh, who said that uh, Pretty Woman wasn't a love story, it was a money story. Its mm. logic depended on a disconnect between character and narrative, between image and meaning, between money and value, and that made it not cluelessly traditional, but thoroughly postmodern. Oh, wow. And I feel like that summed up my reaction to the movie, this sort of sense of of the gaps between what the movie was telling me it was and what I felt it was. And yeah. there was a gap I could not bridge. Yeah, it's a fairy tale of uh, Cinderella proportions, but it just felt rotten to its core. It was the rotten apple. Exactly. So, so yeah, that's about it. I mean, let's quickly just say, where does this... If we are talking about a great year in cinema, does this contribute to 1990 being a great year in cinema or not? Well, I think it's cool that a movie like this can 
succeed to the level that it did. And you can see, if you look at the list of movies that were coming out in 1990, there's a lot of sequels. There's a lot of crap. And it is cool that, and it's it's inspiring in a way that they could just write a movie about a hooker and a guy. And it'd be and the it fourth highest grossing fourth movie highest. of the year. Yeah. yeah. There's something intriguing about that. that I'm with you on that. Is special. And even if you look at the box office of, of other years closer to it, there's not a lot of movies like this. So in that way, it sort of speaks to like the open-mindedness of the audience at the time and the open-mindedness of the market. Even though it's not the best movie, it's still an out there concept. And it also really did pave the way for an entire movement of movies that are better. So, it's true. I mean, true. Like the 90s was in a large part dominated by romantic comedies. And this is the one that sets the template of like commercial viability that says this and, these movies and can when make Harry bonkers Sally. money. This and when Harry, but yeah, I think this is a huge, Which way huge. It's a movie I love. Yeah. Uh, it's a movie I about two human beings. Like, just for launching the career of Julia Roberts, because this movie undoubtedly does so. She is so indelible in it that, you know, that is part of it. I mean, she was the actress. She was a, a, the dominant actress of the nineties um, and continues to be a major force in Hollywood today. And that really starts here in a big way and so that's another thing that you know that this this contributes to what makes a year great is is the product is is the legacies that it leaves not just um the individual films yeah so yeah throw it in the pile why not uh but will i ever watch it again probably not no i don't think i could sit through it again (laughs) i i had to get up and pace a few times um, so that was our discussion of Pretty Woman. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you love the movie, please tell us about it. Um, because like Nat said, we are two cis white males <laughs> just shitting all over a movie that a lot of people love. Um, yeah. And join us next week where we will be branching out even further to talk about Mountains of the Moon. Ooh. Still staying in the spring of 1990. So that's yeah. all from me, Ben. And me, Nathaniel Frazier-McGee. Adios. Bye-bye.